Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 4 to 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you but cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So as I said last week, the text that we looked at last Sunday is kind of a bridging text between John 14, the famous one where Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, and first announces that he will send the comforter or the helper, depending on what translation you're using. And then John 16, which gets a little bit more into some of the detail about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So there's going to be some overlap here between these texts as we kind of go back and look at where we've been and where that leads us in this chapter of the Gospel of John. In his very first speech to the House of Commons in Great Britain after becoming Prime Minister, this was in May of 1940, so World War II was on, Winston Churchill said, I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. I wonder if politicians today could get away. That's, that's one of his very famous speeches. He went on to say, um, we have one plan and that's to wage war and there is one outcome that is acceptable, that is victory. But still he began by saying many, many months of struggle and of suffering. And I wonder today if politicians would get away with that sort of thing, because we're used to people getting up and making all kinds of extravagant promises about how great things are going to be. We're used to people getting up and lying to our faces that, I don't know, rampant inflation is a great thing and really good for the economy, things like that. But we're not used to living in the world that Winston Churchill lived in, and certainly not in the world that Jesus lived in. So John chapter 16 opens in a similar vein with a word of what is meant to be comfort. 
Jesus said in John 16, verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, the thing is, that word of comfort is sandwiched between two other words that Jesus spoke that might not seem all that comforting. Last Lord's Day, we were looking at John chapter 15, verse 18, where Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And maybe we're tempted to think, well, if, if is good, maybe they won't hate us. Maybe if we just are loving, wonderful people, the world won't despise us. But then Jesus goes on to say, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. So that's a problem. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So it's like Jesus saying, if the world hates you, and it will, Because you have been chosen out of the world, this should not come as any great surprise. And it shouldn't. They hated Jesus first. They hated him so much, they were willing instruments in his crucifixion when that day came. And no servant is greater than his master. If they hated our master, Jesus Christ, then the better we reflect and represent him in the world, the more they're going to despise us too. That's why there have been so many martyrs to the faith down through the history of the church. Jesus even went on to tell his disciples what that hatred would look like, at least in their day. Chapter 16, verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. Now, understanding the culture of the time, that idea of being put out of the synagogue is not just like, well, you won't be able to attend the church of your choice. It's like you will be ostracized completely from polite society. Nobody's going to want to have anything to do with you. You'll be lucky if they will sell you food. This was true, as we saw last week, with the stoning of Stephen. Here is Stephen, this loving deacon in the early church who has devoted his life to the distribution of food to the widows and orphans, and on top of that has begun to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he's finally called before the court of the Sanhedrin to give an account of himself, and he begins to proclaim Christ, They hate him so much that these grown-ups literally stop up their ears and say, I'm not listening. And they drag him out, not only of the temple, but out of the city, and they put him to death. More importantly, Hebrews 13 tells us Jesus also suffered outside the gate, outside the city in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's a verse from Hebrews chapter 13. And again, sometimes you read a verse and it's like, I just want to park there. Jesus suffered outside the gate to sanctify his people. How does he sanctify them? Well, very shortly thereafter, in the book of Hebrews, we're told, therefore, let us go to him bearing the reproach that he bore. There's no understanding in any of this in the Gospels or Hebrews or anywhere else in Scripture 
that being a follower of Jesus Christ, especially a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, is going to win you friends in the world. It won't. They hated your master, they will hate you too. And of all of this, Jesus said they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. In fact, he said in chapter 15, verse 25, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Not only is this how it is, it is how it was always going to be. It was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. In other words, they hated him because he was him. They hated him, as we saw last week, because he came and the words that he spoke and the things that he did among them convicted them of sin. This was such an important concept. John's going to overlap it and repeat it now in chapter 16. And all of this being true, and if this was all there was to it, it might be understandable, at least, if we didn't feel all that comforted by that word that Jesus spoke in John 16, verse 1. But chapter 4, verse 16 is the key. He was doing the same thing that Winston Churchill was doing. He was preparing his people for what was to come. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. You didn't need this reassurance as long as I was here with you. Like Churchill, Jesus is offering a word of comfort, not in the sense that comfort is the way we very often think of it. Big, warm hug from someone. He's offering them comfort in the sense that comfort, fort, fortify, fortification, comfort is a synonym to encouragement, encouragement. We put courage into somebody when we encourage them, and we fortify somebody when we come alongside to do that, to do that encouraging. And in that, chapter 16, verse 4 is parallel to verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I don't want it to come as a shock when things don't go well, when the blessing of God doesn't look like prosperity and peace and all of those wonderful things that so many people fix their attention and their lives on. I want you to, I don't, he is unequivocally not saying, I want you to be reassured that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you now that you trust in me. And honestly, there have been so many little songs and choruses written. I I remember singing a song when I was a kid that included the line, and now I am happy all the day. I was like, really? (laughs) I don't know then if my experience of Christ is exactly that, because often I'm not happy all the day. And Jesus is not saying that you will be, quite the opposite. He was not saying, in this world, you will have lots of big fluffy blankets and an unlimited supply of hot cocoa with marshmallows. In fact, later on in the chapter, he says, in this world, this world in which you live, this world which is going to hate you, by the way, you will have tribulation. 
The Apostle Paul said, everyone who tries to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is just a given. Jesus didn't want it to come as a surprise. He didn't want them to think that everything in their life was going to be wonderful, and then at the first sign of trouble, have them turn away or, well, this isn't what Christianity is supposed to be like. Think of that psalm where the psalmist talks about considering the, the wicked and how they're always healthy and prosperous and they have everything they want. And what good is it to even follow the Lord if wicked people have it better in this life than those who follow the Lord have it? And then he says, I went into the temple and I considered their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. We are not having our best life now. That comes later for those who follow Jesus. They certainly are. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation and still take heart, he says, for I have overcome the world. More to the point of our text this morning, in chapter 15, verse 26, we saw... Um, he said, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And this is a reiteration of a promise that we looked at weeks ago back in chapter 14. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And in both of these promises, notice that the helper, that is parakletos in Greek, the advocate or the counselor, is also called the spirit of truth. And that's very significant because this is the kind of helper that the spirit is. Parakletos is a compound word from para, para, alongside or beside, and kaleo, which is to call, name, or summon. And when you put those two words together, parakaleto, what you get is someone who is called alongside to assist or to summon or to advocate, to speak on behalf of the one by whose side they're standing a mediator, an intercessor, a helper. It's the very same word that is used of Jesus in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where John wrote, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, parakletos. We have an advocate. We have one who is with the Father, who speaks to the Father on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. So we've kind of made this unreal division sometimes between the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. It's Jesus' work to come and proclaim the kingdom of God and draw people to himself so that they can be saved. And it's the Spirit's work to do something else. So yes, a helper, but a helper who offers a particular kind of help. Incidentally, the word is translated comforter. You, you sang it in the Come Thou Almighty King. Come, holy comforter. That's based on the King James and the Old American Standard Version. But again, it doesn't mean comforter in the way that, that your mother comforted you 
when you fell and skinned your knees and she wrapped her arms around you and kissed away your tears. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. It means a comforter, like someone who comes alongside you with encouraging words, words that give you courage to get up off of your skinned knees and try riding your bike or your skateboard again. And in the case of the Holy Spirit, he does that with the truth. Hence the spirit of truth. He's not the spirit of good feels. He's not the spirit of just, oh, love, love. He's the spirit of truth. And this is what the spirit was sent to do. Chapter 15, verse 26. When the helper, the parakletos, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, look what he will do. He will bear witness about me. That's how he will help. That's how he will comfort. He will dwell with us and be in us to bear witness to the truth. Chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And this is very much spoken to the eleven, and it is a promise to them and through them to the rest of God's people of what has been fulfilled through the holy scriptures, which were breathed out by God. The Spirit was given to the apostles to bring to mind the words that Christ had done so that they could write those things down and pass them along to the rest of the church. The writer of the Hebrews describes it in exactly those terms. So does Peter in first, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. When the Spirit gave the word to the apostles and prophets, he did not give it in an ambiguous way. He didn't give them some sort of a feeling that they had to interpret, and hopefully they got it right because now we have their words which we have to interpret. I heard somebody recently say that God's word is infallible, but our interpretation of God's word is not that's true, but it only goes so far. Because my interpretation as an individual is certainly not infallible, and neither is yours. But that's why we rely on 2,000 years of church history where we have talked through and studied and dug deep into the word and exegeted these passages that speak to the realities that are so prevalent in our lives. These things do not come from private interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the imagery that's evoked by those words is like a wind that fills the sails of a ship, and then the ship goes where the wind blows it. The Holy Spirit carried the apostles along as they wrote down the words that God wanted us to have. If we were on the basis of this promised spirit of truth, 
supposed to go out into the world looking for truth or interpretations of truth in other places, we would probably find ourselves walking strange and deceptive and destructive paths. But that's not what we're supposed to do. Just look at Jesus' first promise of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. If you love me, Jesus said, we saw this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That seems strange to our ears. Imagine a parent saying to a, to a child, if you love me, you'll do what I say. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another advocate, another parakletos, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. That, by the way, is the promise of Pentecost to come. When Jesus says, I will come to you in John chapter 14, he's not talking about the end of the world or the second coming in that sense. He's saying, I'm not going to leave you alone between the time that I ascend to the Father and the time that I return to raise the dead. I will come to you. I will come to you through the Holy Spirit. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments, second time, and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. There's a third reference. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So in these eight or nine verses, five times, this promise of the coming of the helper, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, is set in this context of keeping the word or the commandments of God. Consider Jesus' prayer for his church in John 17, and that is something that we will do if the Lord is willing in much more detail in a couple of weeks. But verses 14 to 16 will sound very familiar. He's praying about his followers to the Father. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But then in verse 17, Jesus prayed, keep them from the evil one. How did he envision God the Father keeping his people from the evil one? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart to be holy, hageatso. Sanctify, holy. Um, I, I, um, what's the word, Jesus? I uh, consecrate myself, exact same word. So set them apart to be holy in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He'll say that again in John 20. 
They'll breathe on them, say, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Um, and for their sake I consecrate. I set myself apart as holy so that they also may be set apart as holy in truth. When you read that word sanctified, that's what it means. Set apart, literally. And the understanding in Scripture is that we are set apart not just to be different, but to be different because we are holy. And Jesus here is saying the mechanism that God uses for that is the Holy Spirit working through his word. See, God's truth, God's word is true truth. As the late Francis Schaeffer used to say, he wrote, it is an important principle to remember that though we do not have exhaustive truth, we don't know everything there is to know, we have from the Bible what I term true truth. In this way, we know true truth about God, true truth about man, and something truly about nature. Thus, on the basis of the scriptures, while we do not have exhaustive knowledge, we have true and unified knowledge. Closer to home, Article 7 of the Belgian Confession states, for since it is forbidden to add unto or take away anything from the word of God, it doth thereby evidently appear that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. Neither do we consider of equal value any writing of men, however holy these men may have been, with those divine scriptures. Nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude or antiquity or the succession of times and persons, changes, in the times and in the culture and in the people, succession of times and persons, or councils, decrees, or statutes as of equal value with the truth of God. For the truth is above all, for all men are of themselves liars and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts whatever does not agree with this infallible rule, the scriptures, which the apostles have taught us, saying, Try the spirits, whether they are of God. Likewise, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your home. God's truth, God's word is true truth. Nothing changes it. The word of our God will stand forever, the psalmist wrote, and it will. The world... The world that hates us wants us to accept that truth is relative, that you have your truth and I have my truth. And they're both true, even if they're contradictory and that doesn't make sense. But yours is yours and mine is mine. But the Holy Spirit was given to guide us into God's truth and to make us holy, to sanctify us in God's truth. And he does so through the word, bearing witness as the spirit of truth to the word of Christ. We saw a promise of this last Lord's Day in chapter 15, and we see it again in chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Who would have thought? Jesus, who just spent this amazing three or four years with these 11 men that he's speaking to is saying, it is absolute truth 
that it is to your advantage, it is for your good if I go away. Here's why. For if I do not go away, the helper, parakletos, the advocate, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying right now in this room where we're sitting and talking, I am one person talking to 11 people. And, you know, we can manage bigger crowds than that, but only so much. But if I go away, I will send this advocate to you. And then each of you can manage those larger crowds, and this is going to go places. Because the Spirit was not given so that we could merely possess him and all of his gifts for our own enjoyment. But when the helper comes, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into your life so that you can feel really good most of the time about lots of things. He's saying, I'm sending the Holy Spirit into you to speak to you, bearing witness to the truth within you, and then I'm sending you out in the power of the Holy Spirit to speak that truth, God's truth, God's word to the world. As John Calvin noted, Christ means here that the testimony of the Spirit will not be of such a nature that the apostles shall have it for their private advantage. Even then, this had to be pointed out. Jesus is not saying that the Spirit will be given for the private advantage of those who receive him, or that they alone shall enjoy it, but that by them it will be widely diffused, because they will be organs of the Holy Spirit, as indeed he spoke by their mouths. We now see in what way faith is by hearing, and yet it derives its certainty from the seal and earnest of the Spirit. There are many fanatics, Calvin goes on, who disdain the outward preaching and talk in lofty terms about secret revelations and inspirations. But we see how Christ joins these two things together, and therefore there is no faith till the Spirit of God, though there is no faith till the Spirit of God seals our minds and hearts, still we must not go to seek visions or oracles in the clouds, but the word which is near us in our mouth and heart must keep all our senses bound and fixed on itself, as Isaiah says beautifully, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord from henceforth and forever. So the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, has come to us. Jesus said, if I go, I will send him to you. He sent the Spirit to his followers, but the mission of the Holy Spirit was not to them, per se. His mission is to the world. Verses 8 through 11, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and that's the only answer to our sin. 
concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. You're going to need another testimony to how to live as God wants you to concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And in the judgment of the ruler of this world, the world itself will be judged. In other words, the spirit of truth was given to guide us into and set us apart to be holy in the truth that is in God's word so that we can take that and bear witness to the world that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. The mission of the Spirit, which is the mission of the church, is to proclaim the word of God, the word of Christ, in such a way that the world is convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, and in that conviction turns to him for salvation. Some will hear this word and believe, others will not. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So this is an awesome task. God's truth, the word of Christ, calls us, one and all, to turn and look outside of ourselves, not to find the truth within the real me or whatever it is that we think we're going to find there, but to look outside of ourselves for salvation and righteousness and life itself. Our truth, if there were such a thing, will not save, but God's truth will. And that's the truth we proclaim. The world will not thank us for the reminder. But this is our job. It's what we are called to do in the power of God's Holy Spirit. One commentator wrote, Christians today are not eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ as the apostles were, but they are called to point people to the truths about him revealed in the Bible. They can also demonstrate the power of his resurrection lives in themselves. God has chosen his people as a means to reach the elect among the lost. The blessed truth is that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but that can only happen when believers proclaim to you or to them the saving truth of the gospel. For how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Salvation is by grace through faith. How are people supposed to believe if we have not proclaimed the word of Christ to them? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, that word that God's Holy Spirit seals to us and then spreads through us, the way, the truth, and the life. That's what saves. This is the promise of God, and it is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, work in us that we would not grieve or quench the work of your Spirit as he applies the word 
to our lives and that living in the truth that the Holy Spirit brings to us through your word, we may go out and proclaim that truth and spread the gospel that you have given us in Christ Jesus, our Savior, to a world that needs to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.